the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We've got a great show for you today. Election Day is coming up really soon for the primary, and we will be featuring, once again, Professor Howard Lupovich from the Cohen Haddow Center at Wayne State University. We're going to be talking about the Jewish vote. Is there such a thing, the, the myth of the Jewish vote? The, what's, so what's the deal with that? I think it's going to be really great. We've got some really poignant things to point out. In the second half of the show, we will be featuring some insights into the portion of Matos Masai, the double portion, Numbers 29 and following all the way to the end of the book, next week we start to Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. No more stories until October. We've got acapella music scattered out, and we'll talk about that in the second part of the show. A great story, one of my favorite stories at the end. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. <laughs> Hamas lost, launched two rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel. No injuries or damage were reported in either side. In return, IAF planes destroyed two Hamas munitions factories. Israel responded to gunfire from Gaza by blowing up a military outpost. Again, no one was hurt. The IDF shot down a Hezbollah drone sent from Lebanon. This is a new phenomenon. Three people on a bus in Jerusalem were stabbed by a terrorist from Ramallah. The terrorist was killed by a passerby. The three are in light condition. Russia expelled Israel's Jewish agency. They're the ones who help people get to Israel. And ordered its staff to leave Russia. The move is looked to be in response to Israel's support of Ukraine. 
a man, this is disheartening news and fits into the category, I really don't know what to tell this person, but, you know, I feel bad that this happened, but a man from Muncie, New York, is the first person in 10 years to contract polio in the U.S. The man, now in a wheelchair, was not vaccinated. Please, go get your kids vaccinated. Be vaccinated. Measles, polio, all this stuff, we don't have it anymore. It's like, yeah, like what's going to happen with this guy for the rest of his life? Israel, on some good news, Israeli exports are on track to reach an all-time record of $165 billion this year, a 15% increase from 2021, and that was a record year. It is the first time that the service sector exported more than the commodity sector. People are buying Israeli brain power, yes. For those world travelers, Israel's Arkea Airlines began international flights in and out of the Elat Airport. Right now, you can fly to Cyprus, or Cyprus, however you pronounce it, or Georgia, and that's Tbilisi, not Atlanta. The hope is that more flights uh, will soon follow, and other airlines will follow suit as well, giving Israel its second international airport. And in the sport Israel won seven gold medals at this year's World Games and came in 13th, tied with China and Sweden. Go blue. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Online, we have Professor Howard Lupovich. He's been here before, and we'll probably have him on again after this, too. One of my favorite professors from the Cohen Haddow Center at Wayne State University here in Detroit. How are you today, Howard? Good. How are you, Rabbi? Nice to hear from you. Thank you. The pleasure is ours. We've got Election Day coming up in a week or so. And there's always a question about something referred to as, quote-unquote, the Jewish vote. Now, I have personal experience with what might be deemed the Jewish vote. It's a story that happened to me. I was six years old. And when I was six years old, they closed the school for election day so that, as my mother told me, so that the teachers could go work in the polls. I said, when six years old, I said, how long does it take the teachers to vote? And she said, no, 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 they go work in the polls. So, okay, fine. So they're the whole day. So, so I'm jumping on my mother's head, basically. I got nothing to do. I'm bored, six years old, whatever. So she says, I lived upstairs with my, my bubby, my grandmother. She says, go downstairs and help bubby. So I said, okay, fine. So I ran downstairs. I said, bubby, mom says you need help. She says, I'm going voting. Okay, she's going to vote. She said, you want to come? I said, fine, good. She got dressed. She put on her her, her dress. Like she, she, I remember my grandmother clearly 
in the best would be described as a muumu and these house shoes that had the sides of the shoes cut out for her bunions. She put on her Shabbos shoes. She put on her, her, her little hat that she wore. And we walked the half a block down the Burgoy Avenue School in Newark. And I said, Bubby, can I come in with a voting booth with you? She says, no, not your business. And my Bubby was like 4'11". So she had to like reach up and there's this big, huge voting booth and she closes the curtain on it and she's here this just click, 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 click. And then she opens it up and I say, Bubby, who did you vote for? Not a word, nothing. Like I wasn't even standing there. We walk halfway down the block. She stops. She turns. She looks around both ways and she whispers in my ear, Johnson. So I got from there so I can say we had like Democrats like firmly fixed into our the Finman family from way back when. But so let's talk about Howard. You're, you, you've got this historical anthropological uh, approach to it. So Jews came to this country in the 1880s, the big wave from the 1880s through the 19th, mid-1920s, from places where they didn't have voting. My grandfather told me that he didn't know what voting was when he came to this country in 1909. Somebody told you you get to pick a leader. He's coming from Poland. Who picks a leader in Poland? So how did how does a how do we get something called a a block of voters from such an immigrant community? Well, um, great question, and thank you. That's a great story. We all have our stories. We all have our grandparents' stories about voting. Uh, wait, 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 wait! Stop, 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 stop! You have a story about your grandparents well, voting? My, mine's, a sim- mine's a simpler one. My my grandma, blessed his memory, when she would vote, she had a system, and the system was first she would pick the Jewish names. I think after the Jewish names came the Italian names, but she didn't know from politics. She was just looking for names. Okay. She was, looking, she, was she was just looking for familiarity. That was my first voting. But I also come from a family that had always voted staunchly Democrat, and I think. That when Jews came to America, first, as you say, the experience of voting for the overwhelming majority of Jews was something brand new in America, as it was for people who came to America, because most people in Europe, even in countries that were, that had voting, they rarely had universal voting. Even when they, even even in countries where Jews were emancipated, a country they wouldn't let all men vote. Obviously, women could, women couldn't vote yet. There was a property requirement. So there were countries when, when they spoke of, you know, universal suffrage, it really meant universal property male suffrage, and maybe 20% of the population would vote, uh, and, and and only men, obviously. It's just when Jews came to America, uh, they really experienced the opportunity to vote for the first time. And, and I would say if you look back over the last century of Jewish voting, that there's two patterns in the way Jews vote. First, for the most part. The majority of, of Jews have, have tended to the left, not to the right. They tended to vote for uh, Democrats or progressives. That's one thing. And a minority of Jews voted more, more, more conservatively. The other thing is Jews tend to be more moderate than extreme in either direction. But even, even the, for Jews who voted left, only a minority would vote for more, Latin, more radical left-wing parties. Very few Jews voted communist. Which was never much of a party here, and but but even a relative minority voted for for a socialist. Your typical Jewish voter was a moderate left wing voter, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, during the Depression, Jews voted overwhelmingly for FDR and the New Deal, which okay. compared to more radical options was more moderate. That's interesting because people ask me if I'm a liberal or conservative, and I tell people I've said this for forty years. I am a radical moderate. 
I will fight to the end for that, right in the middle road. So it's just, it's just like, okay, so I guess I fit right into the Jewish thing. Did I, how right, was right in the sweet spot? Yes. Yes. I so Jews, I thought most Jews are voted. Was this was it this Jews were like as soon as they got off the boat were thinking philosophically or was it a better marketing com- campaign by the the liberals than the conservatives? The conservatives said, "I was a bunch of immigrants and we we're stuffed white shirts and we don't need those people." Uh, no, well, part of it was marketing certainly because uh, most conservative parties they were only interested in rich people. Uh, and uh, and most Jews who came to America were lower income. They were lower middle class or they were working class. And what the left-wing parties were offering was, in a very practical way, you know, a limit in the number of hours you could be required to work, uh, public schooling for children. These were issues that Jews, like, like others in the same social class, were much more interested in and really affected their life daily. So... The Jews didn't know from the stock market. Most Jews didn't have the portfolio to be worried about high finance. Most Jews were concerned about day-to-day things. But also, as you said, in a very grassroots marketing kind of way, on the Jewish streets, in Jewish neighborhoods, it was representatives of uh, the Democrats, those parties that would that would that, that would uh, really speak to Jews, and. By the time we get to, let's say, 1913 or 1915, the most high-profile Jew of any kind in America is Justice Louis Brandeis. And as Brandeis voted or as Brandeis trended, that's what Jews did. He was this iconic figure. And what he was advocating, first of all, he was advocating a program that was very good and helpful to ordinary people, Jews and otherwise. But he's the one that really drew. He was the one that Jews followed. There was no... There was no right-wing parallel, right-wing Jewish parallel to Louis Brandeis. That's interesting. As a Supreme Court justice, was he involved in politics? Well, uh, before he was a Supreme Court justice, he was a labor lawyer. He was one of the first high-profile attorneys who defended labor unions. And so so while he wasn't doing this for political reasons, I think think he was doing it for more ideological reasons. He believed in labor unions. You can't not be seen as a political figure if you're defending labor unions in court. He was one of the main reasons why labor unions were able to exist at a time when they were still illegal. Brandeis helped make labor unions legal. Fascinating. I, I Now I'm smarter. Thank you so much, Howard. Our guest today is Howard Lupovich from the Cohen Haddos Center of Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. We're talking about the Jewish vote. So FDR... When, when, like the old people in my grandmother's generation, my mother's generation, they talk about FDR. They talk about they, they just like get this like fairy look in their eyes. It's just like wow. He was like he was like the, the <laughs> he was almost the Mashiach already. How did kind of, yeah. how did how did that go? How did that develop? How did he do that? Well, it was a combination of two things. First of all. FDR was the first, as a politician, first in New York and then nationally, to speak out against the standard approach to economics. Because in America, before the New Deal, the standard approach of economics, and this is Hoover and Harding and Calvin Coolidge, was basically the government should not get involved. Now, what's good for General Motors is good for the USA and vice versa. Laissez-faire, the government was hands-off. But that meant there was no social safety net. And uh, that, that point is that mentality regarded you know, periodic recessions and depressions as part of the natural business cycle without caring what it did to ordinary working people. 
and FD, and it wasn't working. And the Great Depression was the ultimate example where lower-income people, working ordinary people, were really just crushed. And there was no Social Security and or any of those other programs. So FDR was one of the first to say that needs to change. That conventional approach to business, which the conservative parties of America are endorsing, which seems only to help a minority of rich people and leaves everyone else out, that has to change. So part of it was he was advocating things, these, these new ideas, which just resonated with many people. But it was also the way he advocated he started the fireside chats. He was one of the, the first presidents whose, whose addresses would go, we would now say he was viral. He would get, he would get out, he used radio to speak to, 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 the, to the nation, to speak to ordinary people at a time when, a, when more and more people had radios in their homes. But he also, when he would give those fireside chats, they weren't these formal political speeches. He, he spoke like an ordinary person to ordinary people. At the same time, he was also dignified. He was also very articulate. He wasn't crass. He wasn't vulgar. He was the opposite of all those things. So he just was the right combination of the right ideas. He knew how to speak to ordinary people, but also do it in a way which was dignified and articulate without being inaccessible. I think that the president that later would recall him the most was Bill Clinton. Because Bill Clinton could explain complex ideas in ordinary terms that ordinary people could appreciate. That's what FDR is. One of his gifts was being able to do that. And he could also turn a phrase. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That message at the beginning of the Depression was such a powerful message. So he knew how to, he knew how to market his ideas. He knew how to reach people. And he had a great portfolio of ideas, just what people needed to hear. Okay, so now our, uh, we're talking about like a Jewish block. My mother told me, she's a uh, blessed memory, when I said to her, I said, I assume that when you had the first opportunity to vote, you voted, her first, first election was 1948, and I said, you voted for Truman, right? And she said, no, I voted for Henry Wallace, who was like more progressive, more liberal than, than Truman was. Truman was voted as a, as a moniker. Was there a split within the, the Jews as a democratic bloc as to how far left or how far moderate they were? There always was a, a, a part of, of the Jewish community that tended further to the left. Most Jews divided between being Democrats like supporting Truman and being more progressive, or today. Jews in between Jews voting for President Biden versus Jews who are more inclined towards, let's say, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So the majority would be more centrist, but there always were those who, who tended further to the left. Now, Wallace is one thing. I mean, I don't think Jews were going beyond Henry Wallace. The other thing about Wallace versus Truman is that, and I think we might say, be able to say the same thing about Bernie Sanders versus Biden, is that policies aside, Henry Wallace was a better speaker. He was more charismatic. He, looked, he sounded better on the radio. Truman was he was good, but he wasn't as dynamic as FDR, and he wasn't as dynamic as Henry Wallace. So, you know, as we move forward through the 20th century, what you say uh, is still important, but how you how you sound on the radio, how you look on television in front of the camera becomes more and more important. But as you say, the Jewish bloc, it was split, but it wasn't split in some wide way. It was generally split between moderate left and a less moderate left. 
Okay, our so guest is Democrats and progressives. Good. Our guest today again is Howard Lupovich from the Colin Haddow Center of Judaic Studies at Wayne State University in Detroit. We're talking about the Jewish vote. Okay, there is an Alan Sherman song which is very funny, which humor reflects really what's going on in the times. The song is called Harvey and Sheila. It's done to the tune of Hava Nagila. And it's just a bunch of abbreviations. It's a whole story that he does. I wish I knew the words. It was, it was just really very, very funny. So he talks about these Harvey and Sheila, that they first got married. They bought a little house in Levittown in Long Island. And she worked for the for the Democratic whatever. But then they made some money. And then they moved to L.A. And they joined the, the Republican Party. So that was early 60s already. So where is this? How is this phenomenon figuring in uh, Howard Lupovich? Great question. Yeah, he switched to the GOP. That's the way things go. That's Alan Sherman's word. There you go. Oh, um, you know it. Okay. Yeah, there you go. I know. I know my Alan Sherman. That's the um, way things go. It's like that's like normal. He says. Well, it's also with a sigh, though. So uh-huh. Jews who Jews who were the, the the minority of Jews were the most upwardly mobile, who let's say moved to the top of the middle class. They would uh, not all. Some of them would jump the aisle, and some of them began to resonate or began to support uh, Republicans, largely for monetary reasons. Because when they when they reached that higher tax bracket, uh, voting for the party that was wanting to lower taxes made more of a difference. So, and I think <coughs> I think it's also I think it's also important to say that those those types of Jews, those successful upwardly mobile Jews, there were really there were two kinds, or. There were some who really, at this point, were thinking only about how much of their money they could keep. And I, I think that's less commendable. But I'd like to think that there were as many or more who they voted for, they switched to voting Republican so they could be taxed less. But in their own personal philanthropy, they were able to give more. And one of the reasons they wanted to be taxed less is so they would have more disposable income to donate to Jewish and other causes. So you have those, but you definitely have those two types. You have Jews who are becoming Republican more for selfish reasons or for economic reasons, but you also have those Jews who are doing that with the added caveat that they want to be able to be better philanthropists. And, you know, American Jewry has been a very philanthropic Jewish community. I mean, not least of all in Detroit. I mean, we have the most prominent examples of Jews who became more affluent, who became remarkably philanthropic. Okay. Um, okay. So, 1967, June of 1967, there's the Six Day War. This marked a real uh, paradigm shift for American Jewry. Before 67, there was a good part of American Jew- Jewry, including the entire Reform movement, which was really apathetic towards the state of Israel. Uh, Stephen Weiss was actually opposed to Zionism. He said, "You don't need Israel. We got America. What do we need Israel for?" Come 67, and now. Israel becomes this, like, focal point. We have these proud Jewish Americans now, and Israel's like a focus. What did that do to the Jewish voting bloc as far as, like, the needs of protecting and, and helping Israel, Howard Lupovich? That's a great question. First, first, let me just tweak a little bit what you say is that the reform movement— um, the reform movement really embraced Zionism in the state of Israel before 1967. Now, in, in, the, in 1937, the reform movement issued what was called the Columbus Platform, which modified their classic Pittsburgh Platform, which was anti-Zionist. But the Columbus Platform in 1937 uh, came out as pro-Zionist. So as a movement, the reform, the reform Judaism got on board with Zionism 
really spurred on by Rabbi Stephen Wise, as you mentioned, and a few others, Judah Magnus and a few others. Um, but you're right, there still were Reformed it was, congregations. It was it was, apath- it was apathetic before 67. People really, it wasn't like, like it, wasn't, it wasn't a thing to talk about. Right. It was something you did, but it wasn't at the top of your agenda. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, 1967 does change it. It makes the state of Israel becomes more prominent, but also... Um, in, in 1967, the real, the real, you know, until 1967, you know, something that Brandeis had predicted. When Brandeis became a Zionist in 1913, he's really the first high-profile American Jew to become a Zionist. He basically said that Zionist values and American values, by which he meant American progressive values, are basically in sync, and that made it easy for the over the majority of American Jews. To be to be able to support Zionism, to be even openly Zionist in many cases, without worrying about being accused of dual loyalty, for example, uh, and that was true all the way till 1967. What we have in 1967 is you have a kind of in 1967 is the first time when the notion that somehow the state of Israel is uh, has is not entirely a progressive state or is not a, entirely a state that supports human rights. The problem with the Palestinians introduced a complexity there. And so beginning in 1967, this is when Jews—the the, the, the notion of being, being liberal or progressive on the one hand and supporting the state of Israel and its policies on the other, we have the beginning of the, com- beginning of the complication. But I would put that change against this change, too. Because Jews who were more Jews who were more Republican even before 1967, uh, if there's one Republican goal or aim, Jews embraced like many other Republicans. It was the Cold War, and for for Republican Jews, it wasn't so much 1967 that really that prompted support for the state of Israel. It wasn't only that, but it was also the fact that in the mind of uh, of the United States government, Israel was the American ally in the Middle East against the Soviet Union. Israel was America's foothold in the Middle East, especially when the Soviet Union started supporting Israel's Arab neighbors. And so that the, the Cold War became a reason to support the state of Israel. Whatever your own personal Zionist views were, uh, because you know, I mean, the, the most ardent American supporters of Israel were those who were most involved in the Cold War: President Nixon, President Reagan, and so Jews who supported Nixon and Reagan, for example. Of course, they were going to support the state of Israel, among other reasons, because this is what you do as a patriotic American to help fight the Soviet Union. So you have that old Brandeis notion of supporting the state of Israel as a bearer of human rights, civil rights, progressive values. But after 1948 or 1950, you also have supporting this. There are other Jews who supported the state of Israel because of the Cold War. You have both those things at the same time. Okay, understood. Okay, so nowadays the Jewish voting bloc, I would say, is about 75 80% Democrat, 20 25% Republican. That's yes. 20, 25% is a big chunk of change. What was it that caused that part of the uh, Jewish block to jump the aisle, Howard Lupovich? I, I think a big part of it is, uh, I think ma- many Jews became, became Republicans because there is a notion that, in the last, say in the last 20 years, that the Democratic Party has, uh, has cooled in its support of the state of Israel. Now, 
And that's an exaggerated notion. There are voices in the Democratic Party that have become more tepid in their support, but they're a minority. The Democratic Party has, you know, overwhelmingly supports the state of Israel. Your typical Democrat in this sense is not Rashida Tlaib. She is an exception and an outlier, and is maybe, I don't know, a dozen voices like her in Congress. Your typical Democrat is like Ted Deutsch in Florida or President Biden or Amy Klobuchar who are, or, or, uh, or Haley Stevens, for example, who are ardent supporters of the state. But their support for the state of Israel is as intense as, as any Republican support. Now, the other twist on it is, uh, probably for the last 20 years, the most vocal supporters of, of, of the state of Israel uh, really have been evangelical Christians. And they support the state of Israel for a completely different set of reasons that has nothing to do with Israel or Zionism or Jews. They have their own Christian self-interest that is motivating that. That's a different story in certain ways. But it gives the Republican Party, because that's where all evangelicals vote, it gives the impression that that's the party that's the real ardent supporter of the state of Israel. And, and, and also, you know, to get back to what you mentioned earlier, a lot of this is marketed. The Republican Party can market itself as the great supporter of the state of Israel because it has this very vocal evangelical block of supporters who are ardently pro-Israel. But also, it doesn't have this small but vocal enclave of critics of the state of Israel that the the Democratic Party has to contend with. And I use the word contend with very specifically because the vast majority of Democratic voters, Jewish and otherwise, and Democratic members of Congress and the Senate, this, this criticism of the state of Israel is something they have to contend with. They are supporters of the state of Israel. Uh-huh. You know, the, 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 there's no chance that the Democratic Party is going to withdraw its support. It's just not going to happen. Okay, you're actually segueing into the next question that I have, which is our final yes. question as we wrap it up. This has been wonderful and fascinating. I could donate, uh, dedicate the whole show to this. I'm having such a wonderful time. Okay, there was a uh, pr- Democratic primary last week in Maryland. A- APAC, the American Israel Political Action Committee, paid $6 million in ads, which I think in Washington that's probably like three ads, but for the uh, for the challenging uh, moderate Democrat who was pro-Israel rather than the incumbent progressive, and the with successful results, the progressive beat the incumbent. And now, in this example, in our own our own backyards, you mentioned Haley Stevens has, I think, a sixteen point lead in the polls over the other incumbent is Andy Levin, who is Jewish, and APAC is backing Haley Stevens. So what's the, what's the effect? Is, there, is, is APAC really such a formidable uh, force in the getting people to vote and voting the way for it, Israel, as it seems? APAC is important. I mean, I, look, I, I would say this. APAC is the most formidable pro-Jewish organization. They don't technically call themselves a lobby, but they, they are, as, as, an inform, as a provider of information and support and money for candidates, Important. Yeah, but as, a, really, as I wouldn't call them a lobby, I'd call them a whole hotel. Yes, I think that's a great way to put it. But but, but the thing what, what what gives APAC a big part of their impact is that for a long time APAC was really the only game of that kind in, in town, and APAC has the credibility of just being around for so long. They are the established supporters of the state of Israel. So especially for people who don't maybe not understand the nuances of what it means to be supportive of the state of Israel. 
or the, don't understand the possibility of being critical and supportive at the same time, APEC is a nice safe bet. If you don't really understand the situation that well, it's a nice fallback position. If APEC says this is the candidate, APEC is trustworthy. And I think I think you know I think APEC has done a good job um, vetting and choosing which candidate is going to serve Israel best. Now the example between Haley Stevens and Andy Levin is a great example. Um, Andy Levin, let's be clear, he is a supporter of the state of Israel. He is critical of certain policies of the Israeli government, but he, he has made it very clear he supports the right of the state of Israel to exist as a Jewish state. In that sense, he sort of inherits the view of his father and his uncle, Sandra Levin and Carl Levin. So the, the, the advantage that Haley Stevens has in, with respect to supporting Israel, and the reason APEC supported her is that while they're, I would say their support for Israel is, is comparable one to another, Andy Levin is more outspoken, A, in his willingness to criticize the policies, but also he's guilty by association of allying on other issues with politicians who are more stridently critical of the state of Israel. So on, on issues not related to Israel, Andy Levin's politics or his, his politics are more in sync with those of, let's say, Rashida Tlaib really is in many ways that the devil in all of this. I mean, she is an outspoken supporter of the Palestinians because she's Palestinian. She's Palestinian-American. And so Andy Levin, what he has to deal with is he has to explain how is it that he and Rashida Tlaib can agree on policy C, D, and E, which have nothing to do with Israel, and yet he's not exactly aligned with her when it comes to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. So it's complicated for him, and I think he if he's going to have any luck in this or future election, he's going to have to he's going to have to figure out how to explain that better. Because I think he I think he's got some nice potential, but he has a he has a formidable marketing or branding challenge because he is guilty by association of uh, of being associated with people who are outspoken critics or who who deny the right of the state to exist. Haley Stevens doesn't have that problem. Haley Stevens is allied with the moderate Democrats like President Biden, for example, or Ted Deutsch, who simply say, I, I support the state of Israel, and, she, and she's not associated with people who are critical. Interesting. So, yeah, a huge advantage. Yeah, I don't know if you're and aware. That's why, and that's why APEC, it was an obvious choice for APEC. Now, if Haley Stevens didn't exist, or if Andy Levin was running in a separate district, APEC would have supported him, too. But it, given the choice between those two, it, it was an easy choice. The other thing, the other thing about Andy Levin is, he he, uh, he associates with J Street, which is APEC's rival organization, which is another another difficult thing for uh, him to explain. He, he he has a bigger branding challenge, and uh, he's going to have to work hard. I don't think he's going to win this time, but he's but uh, in the future he's got to have to work on work harder on navigating this complexity. Okay, that's going to do it. I've had a blast. Thank you so much, Howard. Our guest today is Howard Lupovich, who's Cohen Handel. Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Always a pleasure, Rabbi. Always a pleasure. Okay. Take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's a symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. 
That's MI for Michigan, KO for kosher, and SUP for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. I, that was ex, that was uh, exhilarating. I love that. That was Howard Lipovich, one of my favorite professors of all time. Up next, we got to do some music. I got to see lots too much talking, but so this is God Albaz. This is a song that he recorded nine years ago, but he just recorded it, re-recorded it this week in an a cappella version. We're doing a cappella music because we are in a state of quasi mourning the destruction of both temples in Jerusalem. The song is Yehili Tov. It should be good for me. <laughs> לבנות בשקט עוד עולם של מנוחה מהמרחק של השלמה עם השנים אני תמיד נשאר חזק כשהשמיים משתנים
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulterman here, listening at the Jewish Hour. I don't consider it cheating when a uh, artist just redoes the song in a different way. Like, for example, Yoni Z came out with a song called Crown. I believe it came out in January, February, so it's pretty new. And now this week again, in honor of the three weeks, I guess it's a good thing, you know, they want people to listen to music during the, this time. We are supposed to be sad, but we should be happy in our sadness. How's that one for a Hasidic concept? So we have music, and it's a cappella. So uh, Yoni Z redid his song called Crown.
of Hashem. It's a bond that never ends, no. And thank God for that. You are princes among men in the service of Hashem. It's a love that never ends, no. And thank God for that, Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Matos Masai. It is a very long portion. It is a double portion because it was mandated by Ezra the scribe that next week we read the portion of Devarim. We're at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, right before the holiday of Tishabov. And in fact, it actually falls on Tishabov. And Tishabov is pushed off a day, the, or the commemoration of the holiday of, of the fast of Tishabov is pushed off a day, and we'll be reading Deuteronomy then. So the the time period of the nine days, which is when the uh, the quasi morning, it's quasi, but it's still intensified, picks up with Rosh Chodesh, which is this week. I believe it's. Friday, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't check, I'm sorry. Because at that point, Jews refrain. But till then, we've been refraining from eating meat, uh, from uh, from uh, listening to music, from cutting our hair, from getting married, from decorating, uh, redecorating, remodeling our houses, that kind of stuff. The week before Tisha B'Av, it intensifies in that... Um, People don't cut their fingernails. They don't eat meat. They don't drink wine. So it gets, uh, it's even more intense like the day before Tisha B'Av, which not really this year because it's Shabbos and everything's pushed off because of Shabbos. And then the fast is actually on Sunday. So the portion has something to do with the time period. As always, this, is what, this has been my theme this whole year as to the, theme, the portion of the week having to jive with the calendar. And this one's an easy one. This one, no-brainer. The war against the Midianites is described in this week's portion. The Midianites really went against the campaign against the Jewish people simply because they were the Jewish people. 
The Jews didn't care about them. Midian was located in Saudi Arabia, western Saudi Arabia. The Jews are going east. They're going to Israel. Okay, so they have some Transjordan over there, which kind of probably may, it may have bordered on Midian, but the Jews were not interested at all. And the Midianites attacked them, tried to bring them down, and they got their, in this week's portion, they got their butts kicked. The entire Midianite people were wiped out. From that point on, no more Midianites. With everything, we have another theme recurring, which I've said this for 28 years, every character, every nation, every thing in the Bible is allegorical to some part of us. And it's true with Midian. And there is a very long discourse from the Fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe called Hechaltzub, the first from this Pusik that Moses was told to send out men to go attack the Midianites. And there he describes something called the Klippa of Midian, the evil force that is Midian, which exists today, which is, by the way, the cause of the Second Temple being destroyed. The temple, Second Temple was destroyed because at that time, we're talking in the year 70, there were 24 different divisions of Judaism to the exclusion of all else. Like today. Today, okay, so you have Orthodox and Reform and Conservative, and within Orthodox you have Open Orthodox and Modern Orthodox and uh, Hasidic, and within Hasidic groups you have this group of Hasidim and that group of Hasidim. Today, they have something called the West Bloomfield Softball League, men's Jewish Men's Softball League. And you have, like, Temple Israel will play a game against Chabad, and you have, you know, this Shari Tzedek plays against Temple Israel. It's just, 2,000 years ago, that didn't exist. You had the Baisusim and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Pharisees. And it was just, they didn't marry each, in, each other. They didn't trust each other's kosher. They did not think. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't consider them each other Jews. God said, that's not going to work. This is, this is not right. I can't, if I'm going to be dwelling among the Jewish people, they have, to, they have to be living in peace. Like the blessing at the end of our, our daily prayers says, Barachenu avinu kolonika echad, bless us together when we're all like one. God says, when you guys are all like one, you get a blessing. So what reason is there to hate somebody? The Talmud says, hate somebody? It's the, the, the definition given in the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, that what's the definition of somebody who hates, what's somebody that you hate? Like you can't testify in a court of law against somebody that you hate. So they, they describe what somebody who, you haven't spoke to him at, at, uh, for three days out of animosity. Rabbi Yehuda says no such thing. I never heard that a Jew is angry at another Jew for three days. It's, that's not what it was supposed to be. We're supposed to, we have a lancemanship. Everybody knows that. It's like, uh, <laughs> like, like Howard Lippert said before, if Andy Levin would have been in a different district, so APAC would back him too, even though they may not agree with all the politics that he has. But they would have backed, why? Because he's the Jewish guy. Okay, there is that lancemanship, that brotherhood that exists. And it's only when we overcome our differences does Tishabov become, well, as the Rambam promises, the greatest holiday on the Jewish calendar. Because as black it is, is now, 
That's how great and wonderful it's going to be. And it starts within ourselves first because we have our little own clippus midian within us because everything's a part of us. We have that part that hates ourselves and the Jewishness, I mean, hates the Judaism that we do. Why do you have to do that Jewish? Why do you have to do this Jewish thing? What is this Jewish? Don't get excited about that Jewish. No, we have all that, all that stuff. We had the Baal Shem Tov came 200 years ago, 300 years ago. He was born 200 and something years ago and said we approach our Judaism as an, an, an alacritous, exciting way of how to just do it. The boat, That's my motto. I hope to come to educate you a bit. I hope to come to entertain you a bit. Judaism is interesting, exciting, and fun. We have to relate to ourselves in that way. We have to relate to others that way. We have to relate to God that way. Speaking of relating, we have a back out for a commercial break. We'll be right back with an awesome Hasidic story. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, Listeners like you help keep the Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to the Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Harry Schultzman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Best way, you're on my website. That's the way to do it. Go to the website. Be on the website. Look and see what's doing on the website. What's doing on the website, by the way? Uh, it's almost the end of July. We have to pay for June and July. And as soon as it's going to be August, it'll be June, July, August. So we, we're not three months behind. Baruch Hashem, we're only two months. But in a week, we're going to be three months again. So it's, it's pushing envelope. And I wish that you would push the envelope right out the door with a stamp on it and send it to the Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220, or go to the website, rabbifinman.com, and donate and help keep this. We're at 28 years on the air. This is an amazing thing. I get, I just get, really? Yeah, we started in 1994. Way back when in another universe. Wow. That was like that was before nine eleven. If you think about it, that's like ancient history. Okay, I have kids that weren't born yet in nineteen ninety four, so um, I should go back and find some of those tapes when I had my kids come on. <laughs> anyway, they're buried way back. They're on cassette tape. That's to let you know how old they are. But we've done it for twenty eight years. We're going to do it for another twenty eight years, only with your help. So go to rabbifinman dot com. Go to the donations. And click on whatever number you like. Make up your own number. Make it a monthly thing. Make it a small donation. Make it a big donation. Whatever number you put there, it's all good. Just so do that today. And don't forget, because as soon as you forget, as soon as it's passed by, you'll forget. You won't, you'll have to remind you again next week. We're 53 minutes into the show, and you've, you've loved it so far. Otherwise, you would have turned this off a long time ago. So, as I found out that the really good thing about podcasts, Luke, I don't know if you've discovered that, but when listening to podcasts, you could speed them up because we were all talking like slow 
so that it's understood, so that when you speed it up, I listen to, some I listen at double speeds, most of them are at 1.75. And this way, an hour show takes uh, 35 minutes. You can, you can get it in there. Like, you have to drive from point. In Detroit, you can drive anywhere to any place in 30 minutes, so you can get a, a whole podcast, and it's a good thing. So we're here to help you. So anyway, 1772. The Mazitcher Magid passed away. He was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. And it was decided that rather making up a one communal organization known as the Hasidic movement, that they were going to branch out. And the Alter Rebbe was given the turf, the territory of white Russia and Lithuania. That was his turf. So there was another person who was actually older than the Alter Rebbe. His name was Shlomo Karlin. And he had followers in the Bashenkovich region of white Russia. And some of the environs there. And so he asked permission, can I open up shop over there? Because it's not his turf, it's the Alter Rebbe's turf. The Alter Rebbe gave him certain conditions which he could go work there. It's a different, it has a whole different philosophical approach to the Hasidic movement, which I'm not going to go into right now, not the point of the story. The difference in philosophy was actually a source of great animosity between the two. If you would analyze the letters back and forth, you would think, speaking of which, these people hated each other. No. When Shlomo Karlin needed to come to visit the Alter Rebbe, so the Alter Rebbe accorded him great honor and prestige and showed him all the tremendous things that he was just like, this was like the king was visiting him. That's the way it was. And there's numerous stories about what happened there. And I could probably forbring for about an hour about those stories, too. So the Alter Rebbe, after Shabbos, is told a whole group of these students, please escort him back. So they escorted him back to Vitebsk, from uh, Liadi to Vitebsk. And he was going to go from Vitebsk to Boshankovich. So he asked this one student, whose name was Baruch of Kotsk, Binyamin of Kotsk, excuse me, if he could continue with him to Boshenkovich, he would like to talk to him and, you know, the, and continue because he was very, he was, this was a, uh, the top student. And they talked and they talked in learning and uh, they arrived on Thursday. Um, the, he, this Binyamin says, Thursday, it's too late to go back. So he's in Shabbos in Boshenkovich. There was a large Jewish community in Boshenkovich and a large following of the Alter Rebbe. And this Binyamin told the, the Lubavitchers there, which is what we called them, what honor they had paid because there had been an animosity. So there was an animosity between the followers of the Alter Rebbe and the followers of Shlomo Karlin. And with this, that, that changed when they heard that their Rebbe gave their Rebbe uh, such honor. So as he's about to go, the, 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 the Shlomo Karlin asked, he said, I'm very impressed with you. And Benjamin was actually, he was thinking, maybe I should stay in Bashenkovich and learn from Shlomo Karlin because he's, he is the real deal. He saw him how he davened with the fervor and the learning, and he was like, this is, this is the real deal. So he said, please stay and you'll become my student. So there are two answers that he gave, two versions of the answer. One is, is he said, if you, tell, if you stay, I will teach you the language of the, ver the birds. And to this... He, the Binyamin of, of uh, Kutsk said, language of the birds. 
without the Rebbe, we have the essence of Judaism. We have the essence of God. The other answer is, is he answered him in a sort of like a Ukrainian rhyme, which, which was something Shlomo Karlin actually did, was he said to him, the Rebbe is a Rebbe, but he's not mine. The student is a student, and in Yiddish it would be, but nit dine, so it rhymes, but not yours. So, and he left. And it says that Shlomo Karlin actually cried that he left. That's going to do it today. We hope you had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. Take care. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.